All right, everybody, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we are in a series, um, and the series is um, all about this encounter that Jesus had with his disciples. And if you're new here, I'm glad you're here. We're just a group of people who, um, well, honestly, I can speak for me. I, um, I thought I had all the answers, and I walked away from God and spent about 18 years of my life thinking I had everything under control, but knowing I didn't. And eventually all that came to a harsh reality that I'm not God and worse, I'm not even good at it. And I realized that my life was headed to a place that I didn't really want to go. And um, I stumbled into a place like this and heard about this incredible God who still loves me. And I started understanding that he was changing me. The more I surrendered, the more he changed. And so we keep coming back because we don't have the answers. We don't, there's a part of us that's missing and we don't really know how to fill it, but we know it's spiritual. And we come here and then we think we're going to learn a lot about God and Jesus. If we can just figure it out with our head, we can make a decision. But what happens is we fall in love with God and we realize that it's a heart thing. And so each week we come back and we thank God for the way he's changed us. We thank God for all that he's done for us. And we don't really know what else to do. So we just tell everybody how our lives have changed. And we're studying a series about that process. In fact, Jesus promised the disciples. He said if they would follow him, he would make them into fishers of men. He didn't say, I'll make you rich. I'll make your life wrinkle free. I'll get rid of any problems you have. I'll give you a turn. He didn't say that. He said, you follow me. And when you follow me, something's going to happen to you. Not something you do, something I'm going to do, Jesus says. He says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They didn't even know what that meant. But they'd just seen an incredible miracle. This man knew where the fish were. They trusted Jesus, even though they didn't know exactly what they were signing up for. And many of us are like that. We come to Christ. We know we need help. We don't know exactly what it all means, but we take a step of faith. And the next thing you know, we're beginning to change and we're being made into something that we weren't before. Now, many people are hesitant because they say, you know what, if I surrender to Jesus, he could change me into something I don't want to be. You see, they want what he offers after death, but they want to keep their faith private and under control and maybe just on the lowdown. And Jesus said, look, if you follow me, if you truly follow me, something's going to happen in you and you will be fishing for men. Why? Well, because the message of salvation is not naturally understood. You would never look back to the first century, learn about a Jewish rabbi dying on a cross and understand what it meant if somebody didn't come and tell you about it. That's the beauty of the gospel. From the moment Jesus said, uh, I'm leaving, you go tell the world what I did and what's happening, person to person has spread the gospel message through generation after generation after generation until it finally got to you. Think about that. How many people had to be faithful before that message got to you? And then what are you doing with a message that's been handed down so many times? Does the tread really just stop with you? You see, we don't naturally understand the message of God. We don't understand naturally why he came or what he did. We don't simply follow a bunch of rules and we're not here because of some ethical or moral standard that we're following. Our faith is based on history. 
We truly believe that God came to earth, lived a perfect life, and on a very real day, died on a very real cross, and three days later, on a very real day, walked out of that tomb and went back to heaven. We believe that moment in history. But in order for history to be understood, it has to be told. Somebody's gotta tell you what it is and what it means. A couple weeks ago, we learned that we were all fish once. Every one of us was lost. Every one of us uh, was born apart from God. And last week, we learned that the disciples, they didn't have a clue what God was gonna do. They didn't know what was gonna be required. But the one thing they prayed for was boldness. God, if you give us nothing else, if you never bless us, if you never change anything, if this is all there is, then when the moment comes, if it's gonna cost me my life, whatever it costs, when that moment comes, God, make me bold. Incredible prayer. But this has been a challenge because maybe you left last week thinking, you know what? I'm gonna need boldness because the thought of going and talking to somebody about Jesus on my own, whew, that's just a bunch, that's a lot. Uh, they're going to reject me. I'm going to have problems. I'm not a good speaker. Moses tried that. I'm, I'm just not good. And yet you're asking me to go. And yeah, I'm going to need boldness, but I'm going to need a lot of help. And you may have left here thinking, wow, there's a lot of weight on my shoulders. I got to go reach people for Christ and I'm not equipped. I don't know how. But Jesus promised a few things. He'll never give us more than we can handle. He's always with us. And notice something else. He didn't call one disciple, he called 12. So today I wanna to share with you, I wanna lighten the burden a little bit because fishing for men is not a solo endeavor. You weren't asked to go change the world by yourself. You weren't asked to go tell people about Jesus by yourself. Yes, you may do that at some point. But when Jesus said, you go make disciples of all nations, the you is plural. You, my followers, all of you together, disciples, all 12 of you, go make disciples. We are called to fish for men, but we're called to do it with other people. You may have been here last week thinking, man, I gotta go share the gospel, and, but you got fishing partners. Those who fish for fish know that it's hard fishing alone. It gets boring pretty quickly. If you're not catching, even if you are, if you're by yourself, it's just not the same experience. You're much easier to give up and get frustrated, to go home early. A solo trip without catching fish is disheartening. Having someone else to fish with while you don't catch fish is very uh, enlightening, it's very supporting. So I wanna look at a passage today where Jesus began to shape his disciples to start understanding what he was calling them to. But I have to tell you, just in advance, this is one of the few sermons I do where it's really rated R. We're gonna talk about some things that I don't think kids should be listening to, but it's integral to the text or I wouldn't talk about it. Now, one thing we're gonna to learn today is that when Jesus makes us into fishermen of men, we fish where he tells us to fish. In other words, he's gonna ask us to go and to go to places and learn how to fish. He may take you to places you never wanted to go. He may ask you to go and share with others. He may take you as a group and you may be standing there going, what are we doing here? This isn't the group I thought about I would go reach. 
But Jesus is the greatest teacher that ever lived. He used all the senses, but he took his disciples places and particularly used visual uh, effects. And he also used geography. I wanna show you the extreme that Jesus goes to to make sure his disciples understand where they're gonna be fishing. We've, we've studied and are studying what it means to be a fisher of men in the first century. We also, over the years, have studied Jewish culture and we understand the law and how important that is and devotion to God's word and how they were so focused on personal purity, how they'd never go anywhere that was dirty. They'd never go anywhere that was pagan. They tried to stay away from anything that dishonored God. We learned about pagan and pagan's land and we learned about the depth of the offense that the Jewish people had for those who lived in pagan lands and rejected their God. The Holy Land was called holy for a reason. But just go to the north of Galilee and things get really crazy really fast. North of Galilee is Mount Hermon. It's a large old city testament there called Dan. If you remember, Dan was the tribe of Israel that was the fallen tribe. If you continue east from there, you come to a cave at the bottom of Mount Hermon. Let me tell you a little bit about the ancient world and that particular cave. They believed in fertility gods. They believed that these gods were constantly involved in intercourse. The rain was sperm, the crops, lambs, and babies were the fruit. They, they believed that the gods went to the underworld and it stopped raining and they had a dry season. And if they did everything well, the gods would return and come back from the underworld. The underworld in Greek was called Hades. In Hebrew, Sheol, it's a dark, dreary, watery place that's under the earth. So wherever they saw water coming up under the ground like a spring, they believed that was a gate to the underworld. So every spring, they thought the gods went to the underworld and if they worshiped them just right, if they did everything just right, then in the fall, the gods would return and copulate and sustain life again for another year. At the base of Mount Hermon, there is a cave that you can still visit today. In biblical times, water came up from that cave, flowed down the hill, forming what we know as the River Jordan and the Sea of Galilee and terminates in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is south. If you go all the way up, you get not only to Mount Hermon, you get to that cave. When Alexander the Greek came through in 330 BC, he set up one of those Greek cities with an arena and a library and schools and churches, all at the base of this spring and that cave. And he turned the city into the world center of Greek fertility god, Pan. In their time, the River Jordan flowed out of that cave and flowed down into Galilee. In 1879, there was a huge earthquake and the origin of the river is now further down the mountain. It doesn't come out of that cave anymore. But for thousands of years, year after year after year, when the rains, would, the cave would fill and the water would flow. So they named the city Paneus. It's a word that we get pandemonium or panic from. The Romans took over this city later and renamed it Caesarea Philippi, named after Herod's son Philip and Caesar. 
It is in Caesarea Philippi that the Greeks and Romans established an outdoor worship center or shrine to Pan, the fertility god. It's carved into rock right next to the cave. In front of it was open air platform or stage where Pan was worshiped. The place was huge, it was a world center. It was the Vatican of Pan worship. People came from all over the world to worship the fertility goddess at that cave, at that place a place they believed that reached down into the underworld. And it's only 28 miles from where Jesus lived. In the windows were images of Pan and his nymphs. He's always portrayed as a half goat, half man with a very large erect sex organ. During the celebrations, the priests and priestesses would copulate in front of the worshipers. As many as 100,000 people participated in these events. They called the cave the Gate of Hades and carved out the shrine of the Rock of the Gods. There was also a shrine to sacred goats. They would be brought out during ceremonies and unwillingly participate in sexual activities. Are you getting the picture? After the goats were involved, then came the time known as pandemonium. All the worshipers would join in with each other and the goats. It was most likely the most disgusting place on earth. Now, I apologize for being blunt, but if you don't understand this place, you'll never understand the story of what happened there. So imagine one morning, Jesus says, hey, disciples, fishers of men, let's go. Now remember the purity and the holiness and the moral code of Jewish people. And imagine Jesus starts in Galilee and he starts going north. He takes his disciples where most people who were under 20, I mean, some of his disciples were young. And they go to, of all places, Caesarea Philippi. It's not surprising that they don't talk much on the way to this place. They're probably freaking out. What if somebody finds out I'm here? What could this do to my reputation? Where is Jesus taking us? What kind of rabbi does this? Everyone knows those who walk north are evil. So they walk 28 miles. Not a single word is recorded in scripture as they make that journey. I think Jesus didn't say a word. He told his 12 disciples and probably other folks, including women, and they walked to the bottom of Mount Hermon. Matthew 16, 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now imagine the disciples are probably asking the same question about Jesus. What kind of rabbi are you? Why have you brought us to this disgusting place? No respectable rabbi brings his disciples here. Who are you? They didn't ask the question, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he engages them in a question. The question is this, hey guys, what's the word on the street? Seems like everybody has an opinion about me. What's trending out there? Matthew 16, 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. John the Baptist, that's weird. He was here when Jesus was here and we saw him decapitated. How could Jesus be John the Baptist? Elijah or Jeremiah, that's odd. 
That would have had to come from Jewish people who knew who they were, and Jewish people definitely don't agree with reincarnation. Word on the street is obviously nobody has any idea, Jesus. Definitely you're from God. You clearly have a message for the Jewish people. Lots of rumors going around. More starting today. Everyone's talking about you, and I promise you, you'll be trending tomorrow. They're checking you out. And honestly, Jesus, now that you brought us to an orgy, we're trying to figure out who you are too. See, people have a lot of questions for Jesus. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why do the good seem to die young? Why aren't children immune from death? What about creation and the dinosaurs? Was the Bible written by man or God? People have a lot of questions. But Jesus cuts to the question. The most important question I believe in the Bible. He says to them, but who do you say I am? See, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. I'm here for you to face that question and answer it for yourself. Who do you say I am? Forget what you've heard. Popular opinion doesn't matter. You're on your own. You can't phone a friend. You can't Google for a response. You guys have been walking with me. You've been observing me. I told you to follow me. You've been following me. Who do you say I am? And my favorite disciple, Peter, is about to have another one of his hero or zero moments. Imagine the awkward silence. Who do you say I am? I suspect you could see 12 men staring at their sandals. Please don't pick me. Please don't make me answer that. Think how weird that moment must have been. Think about what's going on in the background. Think about Jesus standing there. Who do you say I am? And they're all going. And he can read our mind. He's done a lot of miracles. We've seen it. He's done things only God could do. Apparently, none of our previous answers was right. He's not John the Baptist. He's not a prophet. Now they're standing in the most pagan place on earth. And they're probably thinking, I thought I knew who you were, but now that you've brought us here, orgies going on, the gates of hell nearby, I don't know yet who you are. A lot of pressure to get this right. A lot of intense is not John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. It's not one of the prophets. And then all of a sudden, Peter blurts out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then I think he stood back and went, where did that come from? Because that wasn't me. You're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Now remember, Peter's probably the oldest in this group. He says something here that's very non-Jewish. He says, you are the son of the living God. Why didn't he just say, you're the son of God? Because they were close enough to see what was going on at this temple. Peter's essentially saying, Jesus, why did you bring us up here? Do you realize how young these boys are? You shouldn't be here. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God, not this garbage. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Do you notice that Peter hadn't asked a question? He made a statement, but Jesus answers him anyway. Peter must have had some insecurity in that answer, or at least a bit of wonder. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not totally sure if he was right, not totally sure where it came from. But there it is. Jesus says, this revelation, this awareness, that truth that you just blurted out, that you're not sure where it came from, that came from the Spirit, that came from the Father. You didn't get this one based on your knowledge. You didn't get this one based on under, understanding some secret code that's in Scripture. You didn't get this one any other way than the fact that the Father revealed it to you. In other words, Peter, welcome to the new reality of spiritual revelation in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is present and teaching you what you could not otherwise have known. The only way anyone knows that I am God is if the Holy Spirit reveals it to them. Without that revelation, you don't know. You can't come to that conclusion with your mind. This is a spiritual thing that's happening, Peter. The truth about Jesus has to be revealed to you in the Spirit. It's not something that you conclude based on logical thinking. It's not something that you can scientifically prove. At some point when you study Jesus, you just know that you know that you know and you don't know how you got there. And Peter was the first. In Hebrew, Jesus literally says, I tell you, Peter, you're Rocky. It's his nickname. From now on, you're Rocky. I love that. I love that Jesus speaks into potential. He doesn't see where you are. He knows who you're going to become. Peter, right now you're this weird disciple, but I already know where you're going and you're a rock. He told Gideon, mighty warrior, Gideon was hiding. He wasn't even like doing anything. He called James and John sons of thunder and all they did was hide behind their mom to ask Jesus questions. He always speaks into potential. What that means is he's not seeing you right now. He knows the you you're going to become, and that's the reality he lives in. Now picture the scene. A massive orgy is going on, the entrance of the cave. Thousands of people, large rock cliffs. Up above are the shrine. The cave is the gate of hell. Everybody knows that. Every lewd and disgusting act is being performed in pandemonium, and nearby, within shouting distance, is a Jewish rabbi with 12 disciples who are following him. And what's worse, they're not involved in any of this lewd activity, and, and they're doing so for the primary purpose. These people, what makes it worse is they're worshiping a false god too. And they had no idea that the very real God was standing there with them. Now capture this moment, a hundred foot cliff, towering, impressive, seems huge. And Jesus says, you are Peter, you are the rock. My church isn't gonna be built on this stuff. My church is gonna be built on a rock. I change your name exactly at this moment. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Here's what I love about Jesus. He saved this name long before Peter was ever born. He gave him this name for this moment. Jesus says, look, I'm gonna build my church on this rock. 
What rock? Well, the Catholics would tell you that the rock is Peter. That the Pope during every generation is a literal reincarnation of Peter. That when he speaks, he speaks as an apostle. That when he writes, he writes scripture. That he doesn't make mistakes. And they believe the church is built on Peter, the Pope, who speaks for God. Protestants say, no, no, you're missing the whole point. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. The stone the builders rejected, the church is built on Jesus, not Peter. The rock is the revelation of the Holy Spirit and Peter's confession about who Jesus really is. In other words, what the Protestants say is, look, it doesn't have anything to do with Peter. It has to do with the fact that Peter had a supernatural revelation from God on who Jesus is. And that's going to happen to people all over the world. And that's how we're going to build the church. Not because you decide on your own to follow Jesus, but because the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to you. Peter knew that he was not the foundation of the church. Nowhere does Peter take a leadership role of the other disciples. Nowhere does scripture do the other disciples ever elevate him to that status. Peter was very clear that the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone of the church is Jesus. We know because he wrote it. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter knew. He constantly referred to Jesus as the foundation, the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, look, Jesus is the foundation. The rest of us, we're just a bunch of living stones making up a wall. And Jesus says, I will build my church. He doesn't say, Peter, build my church for me. Put it in Rome, make it a city, bring in a pope. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't miss, you're gonna miss this. I build my church. You and I don't build the church. We don't make church growth happen no matter how many experts come by and say, if you just did this, the place would be full. We create a welcome environment for the spirit of God to change lives. That's what growth is. To reveal the truth about Jesus to those who walk in these doors wondering. Just as the truth about Jesus was revealed to Peter by God and he blurted out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Every person who's ever surrendered to Jesus has done so only because God in that moment revealed truth to them supernaturally. The work of God, the Holy Spirit, he convicts us of sin. He makes us realize where we are. He leads us to repentance. He reveals the truth about Jesus. He gives us the faith to believe. He guides us in the spirit to surrender. Protestants believe that only one thing overcomes hell. You may have learned about Jesus, but at some point, deep down in your spirit, you just know. And you don't know how you know, you just know that you know. 
I obviously believe in the Protestant version, but I think Jesus is saying something much deeper here. He mentions two things that are right in front of them, the gates of hell and the rock of the gods. Looking over the cave, the river literally flowing out of it is another moment that John would later seem to write about. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were about to receive. John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What Jesus is using this site for is look, you see that gate, you see that, that gate of hell that goes down to the water? What you don't understand is out of that gate, out of that hell is gonna become a living water that overflows and changes the world. Not this stuff you see here. You see, Peter, I'm not calling you to stay in your pristine, protected, Jewish world where everything's clean. My church, Jesus said, is gonna be built in places like this. People like this, people in the depths of the darkest sin, that's who we're fishing for. They're gonna turn from these disgusting acts that they don't know any better and they're gonna confess Jesus as Lord and they're gonna become part of my church because I'm building it. And some of the people I want to reach, you won't even talk to. Jesus standing at the gates of hell, looking over the abhorrent sexual practices, looking over those worshiping false gods, says even from a place as bad as this one, the revelation of the Holy Spirit can happen and rivers of living water can flow out of this place, even a place like this. You see, we're gonna build a place, Peter, where the real living God is worshiped. Peter, I want you to do something about this. I didn't bring you guys up here just to look at it. I brought you up here because I want you to understand I'm about to send you fishing in these kind of waters. You wanna follow me, fix it, fix this. Fix the way people are living around you. Take the answers, let the Holy Spirit move you. And I think as Jesus is speaking, he's speaking very loudly to the point that people could hear it. Think about how disruptive it must have been. It'd be like having a priest and a nun show up on the Vegas Strip. And all of a sudden he starts talking. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Western Christians have developed safe, pristine, pristine models to kind of protect ourselves from the ugliness of the devil. We hide behind stained glass and social class, just hoping Jesus comes back before we have to do anything about this. And I believe with every ounce of my being that Jesus is calling our church to follow him to places where Satan needs to be defeated. And not by ourselves, but in groups. Think about this for a moment. I, I hear this quoted all the time and I think people really miss what Jesus is saying here. What do gates do? If you put up a gate, what does it do? Well, it either is designed to protect people inside or keep people outside from coming in. 
So let me ask you this question. Do you think the gates of hell are designed to keep people out of hell who want to go there? No. I'm sure Satan is, come on, let's go, come to hell, let's go. The gates of hell are designed to keep the people in hell there. It's important to understand. People built walls and put up gates around cities to protect the people in the city. Put another way, if there are gates of hell, who's attacking who? Don't miss this point. Jesus is making a very strong point here that Satan can't stop the church. When Jesus looks at that cave and he goes, I'm telling you, the gates of hell cannot prevail against my church. It's a battle cry. Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church and Satan, your gates cannot protect the people I'm coming for. There are people bound, headed to hell right now in your grasp, in chains from their sins. You're trying to keep them behind the gate and I'm gonna tell you, we're coming after them. We're gonna save them because they end up in places like this, doing things like this. You, Satan, can't stop my church. We're gonna rescue people bound for hell and you can't do a thing about it. It's a battle cry. Jesus said, I don't care how disgusting they made their lives. I don't care if they're covered in mud in the middle of pandemonium with a goat. It doesn't matter. We're going after them. Many are mine and you can't stop my fishing team from rescuing them. And he says, fishermen of Jesus, your mission is not to build a fort in order to keep Satan out. Your mission is to take on the devil himself and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus never said to keep your light in the light. He said to go where it's dark. Go where it's spiritually dark. He wants to take his fishers of men to the sinners, to the lost, not waiting for them to somehow decide to grace the doors of our church. Jesus tells these young men at Caesarea Philippi that believers are not to live lives where they hide from the devil and his ways. He's showing them the devil in all his ugliness to inspire them to actually do something about it, not hide from it. He walked these young men 30 miles to the gutter and cesspool of human life in order to say, look at this. Your mission, fishers of men, is to do something about this. That's why you're still here. That's why I haven't taken you home yet. You see, you're empowered by the Holy Spirit and Satan is destroying these people and you should have compassion on them and I'm calling you to fish for them and to go save them from themselves. Jesus said, okay, Matthew, write this down. Make sure you don't miss this. I'm gonna grow my church by breaking people out of hell who are bound in a jail they're in, by revealing who I am through the Spirit and Satan can't stop us. They didn't know it at the time, but that's exactly what Jesus did. This small, dusty, nowhere place in the Middle East, a homeless, self-proclaimed Messiah with a band of 12 misfits, says, I haven't done it yet, but it's coming. The common ground for the power of my church is the answer to the question, but who do you say I am? Now, 2,000 years later, that's exactly what Jesus has done. Over half the world's population from different lands, cultures, languages, traditions, socioeconomic classes, races, 
educational level, sinful past, they all make up the church of Jesus Christ. They worship differently, play hymns or rock, have different ways of baptism, different ways of taking on communion, of dressing for church. They're so different in so many ways. Baptists, some Presbyterians, some Mennonites, different views of non-essential theology, different seminaries, messed up people from all walks of life, and Jesus uses them to build his church. And we know because that was us. At one point in our lives, there were Christians looking in at our lives going, what in the world are they doing? And all those people have one thing in common, a very firm foundation, a big, huge, honking, unmovable, massive, indestructible rock. The rock is the revelation of who Jesus really is. Every believer responds to a supernatural revelation, the same one that Peter experienced at Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus is the unique, one-of-a-kind son of the living God. God who became man, he is Messiah. Jesus told Peter and the disciple, this is where fishing for men starts, on this one truth. We're gonna convince people one by one. The Holy Spirit's gonna reach them and move them and reveal who I am, and we're not gonna stop until every tribe and nation has heard about who I am. Nothing is gonna stop my church, Jesus says, from setting prisoners free. No matter how ugly the church is, it's still my church and I'm still gonna use it. Not corruption, financial scandals, immorality, bad leadership, False teachers, inquisitions, crusades, slavery, church division, fallen pastors, fake pastors. It doesn't matter, Jesus says, no matter what happens to my church, it's going to be built supernaturally on the foundation of Jesus and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And it's all held together by one undeniable truth. So go back to your picture of Jesus with his stunned and horrified disciples standing next to what clearly looked like the gates of hell. They're probably the only one clothed. The disciples are beginning to realize that Jesus is calling them to fix this, to not run back and live the rest of their lives in Capernaum in the synagogue. They have the answer to everything ugly and he refuses to let his fishers of men keep it a secret. Matthew 16, 24, and he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is essentially looking at the crowd. Don't do this. Deny yourself. Follow me. You are forfeiting your soul. Do you not realize that? I picture a man covered in mud, looking over at this crazed rabbi by the gates, telling him, what are you doing? And somehow deep inside he goes, you know what? I think he's right. I don't know how I know that, but he's right. I need to quit doing this. I need to leave. I need to follow him. I don't know why. I don't know what's moving in me, but what he's saying is true and I know it. Only question I have is, does your kingdom have a place for me after all that I've done? Can I still follow you? 
See, because I'm far from a Jewish disciple. I'm far from a Jewish rabbi. I'm a disgusting man covered in mud in the middle of pandemonium. Is your church a place for me? kingdom of God welcomes everyone who trusts in Jesus. But let me be very clear. You're not allowed as a disciple of Christ to stay in the mud. You have to get up and follow him. He didn't say, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He said, follow me, and when you follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Now, your mud may be sexual sin. Could be substance abuse, could be materialism, could be pride, could be arrogance, could be laziness. Could be pornography, whatever mud Jesus pulls you out of. People who are his disciples don't stay in the mud. You see, we expect people who don't know Jesus to be defeated. They're helpless to overcome the mud that they're in on their own. They're literally in sinking sand. We have compassion on them. But once you surrender to Jesus, you have the power to do something. You're no longer hopeless and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. You're a fisher of men representing Jesus Christ who's going to bring revelation to people who are lost. You're to do something about it, and doing something starts with you and me. Too many physically able people who claim to know Christ are going through life expecting other people to serve them. Too many people use their addiction as an excuse for laziness and helplessness. Too many people secretly like the mud and want to stay there so excuses are rampant. Too many people who can work choose not to, and God says that if his followers do that, you should starve. Too many people come to church to see what the church can do for them rather than what God is asking them to do for him. Jesus said he came to serve and not be served. And his fishermen are to do the same. The church that Jesus builds is messy. People come from dark places. They're entangled in their sins. They've been imprisoned by Satan. They see no hope on the horizon. They're being held behind the gates of hell. They truly are helpless and hopeless, like sheep without a shepherd. But then the shepherd sends the spirit, sends someone to those people and helpless and hopeless no longer define them. When you look out over the church that Jesus builds, people should make you feel uncomfortable. Of course they're not like us, they're not supposed to be. They don't know Jesus yet. Stop expecting people who don't know Jesus to act like they know Jesus, they don't. Yes, they're doing things that are offensive to God, but maybe you should introduce them to the God so they'll know that. Thank God they're not like you because it means you're being transformed. They're like you used to be. Oh yeah, you've cleaned yourself up a bit, but there's probably highlights of your life that you don't want anybody to see. But back then, somebody looked beyond your sins and told you about a Messiah. Church is the place where everybody's welcome. People entrapped by sins are expected here. They may be covered in the mud of the sins. They may have friends that are just like them. They may not dress right. They may not smell right. They may not know how to behave perfectly, but I sure hope that they make you uncomfortable. Because people who are following Satan should make everybody with the Holy Spirit uncomfortable. 
but they should never make us run away and retreat. Never make us run back to the safety of our walls and our stained glass at our church. We're called to break down the gates of hell that Satan has locked them behind. When man builds a church, it looks nothing like the church that Jesus built at his disciples at Caesarea. Man's church looks pretty. Everyone looks like everybody else. They all dress on their Sunday best because of course they actually have Sunday best. They sit respectfully, they have a mental checklist of who's allowed to be here and meet Jesus and who's not, who they're gonna welcome to the church and who they're not. Number one on the list is me. Do they make me feel good? When I walk into church, do they meet my needs? Do I like being around them? God's not present in a church that man builds. Rather than the aroma of the Holy Spirit, there's a definite odor in the air. And sadly, it's been around so long, they all get used to it. There's a pungent aroma of a religious, elitist, self-righteous judgment blended with pious arrogance, and it fills many churches. He tries to warn them in Revelation. We looked, right? Seven churches, and he told them, you're not doing what I told you to do. Jesus blistered those who tried to build their own church. He blistered them for shutting others out from the kingdom, for bringing condemnation to converts, for dishonest approach to oaths, for letting unimportant things eclipse what's important, for letting external cleanliness hide the need for internal cleanliness, for rejection of Jesus. Remember that in Revelation, Jesus is going to knock on the door of these churches. And he's not knocking on your heart. He's knocking on the door of the church that has his name. And he's saying, will you please let me come in? You see, you've been gone from me so long, you don't even recognize who I am anymore. I have to knock on the door of the church. Please let me in. I'm supposed to be here. Jesus never asked man to build a church for him. He is clear in Caesarea, I will build my church. The church that Jesus builds reaches everybody. No matter how deep or ugly their sins have been, it's full of messed up people who heard Jesus up on the hill inviting them to leave the goats and come out of the mud. And they walk here and they walk into this building and they say, is there a place for me? Can I follow Jesus too? Can you show me the way home? You see, I'm covered in mud. I don't know what to do. I need to be rescued. I need help breaking the chains that have bound me into this hell. I've been locked behind the gates of hell and my understanding is you have the key. Are you gonna help me or are you gonna run back to your church, the one you built to keep people like me out? Do you really wanna fish for men? God is clear, you can become just like Jesus. But to do so, he has places for you to go. If you wanna be like Jesus, you commit to following him wherever he takes you. If he says, follow me, we're going to hell, you say, okay, let's go. You gotta get comfortable being uncomfortable. You gotta be willing to go to the places he goes to, to engage the people that he engaged, to die for people that he died for, to love the people he loved be part of the church that he builds. You can become just like Jesus if you're willing to go where he goes and do what he tells you to do. 
we get confused. We, we make the mistake of thinking that we're building the church. That if we just market it correctly, if we just change the message a little bit, make it more entertaining, more engaging, we can build the church for God and he'll be so proud of us. You and I have never saved anyone and we've never built a church. Jesus builds, we fish. We make the mistake of thinking we're building the church. And over the years, churches have missed this. Some churches, like the Baptist one I grew up in, said, go find or make Christians and bring them to church, but make sure they're cleaned up, presentable, respectable. Make sure they're one of us. Give them the checklist. You know what it is. Make sure they qualify to be here. Whatever you do, don't bring someone who can embarrass the church or make us feel uncomfortable. Other churches were all about tradition and maintaining traditions and attendance. Not so much focus on fishing, just making sure the fish you have caught still feel guilty about it. Not focused on the revelation of who Jesus is, but rather numbers, dollars, and images. For those who truly follow Jesus, who are fishers of men, too often the church is not with them. You see, the church of Jesus should be a partner in your fishing. You should come here because you're like, I've got to fish for people, and these people are going to help me do it. You would never send someone to Caesarea Philippi on their own. I don't care how pious they are. You go places like that in groups because there's power in the structure. Now, I can't speak for other churches, but I can speak for what God has led us to do at Remnant. We strive to be a place where everybody can come, not just come, but engage. We want to mix fish with those who are fishing. We want those who are fishing for men to do so here and outside these walls when they leave. You have a testimony, and we're going to be talking about this, that God wants you to share with people in the world. They need to hear your story. It's not limited to this place on a Sunday. But you're not fishing alone. God has placed you at Remnant to fish together because we weren't meant to fish alone. There's something credible that happens when lost people encounter an authentic Christian community. It's the most amazing thing. It's one of the most powerful things on the planet. When people walk into a room like this and feel the Holy Spirit, and they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is, but they feel Him, see Him. They see Him in your eyes. They see Him in the way you greet them. They see Him when you're not judging them, but walking them out of the mud into the place where Jesus can heal them. They begin to change as they walk in. The first question they ask every single time, is there a place for me here? And when they find out, their edges begin to soften. Their resistance starts to fade. When they see how we love and care for each other, it breaks down the stereotypes of the Christians they've always heard about. It breaks down their barriers of belief. Their heart opens up and God can then allow them to change not because we confront them and not because we have the answer to all their questions, but because in the midst of authentic Christian community, they are in the presence of God as much as they ever will be. Why are we here? To worship God and to show people the way home. I tell people all the time, the church is a spiritual hospital. People come in here wounded and beaten up from a battle with Satan they didn't even know what was going on. They're literally refugees from a spiritual war and they stumble into these doors and they look at us and they say, is there a place for me here? Can I still be with Christ? Authentic Christian community is like throwing a chum bag out in the water for fish. 
People who come and they see the love we have for each other. They see the way we genuinely care about them. How we don't care if they ever give a dime. We don't care if they ever serve. What we want is them to know Jesus. And they know that. There's something extraordinarily powerful when you mix lost fish with communities of believers. You see, we're a fish together. So at Remnant, we focus on Jesus. But it requires community and authenticity, not perfection. We are messed up people, just look around. But we're being transformed by God. And above all things, our authenticity is critical. Remember, Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It's only through surrender that we become more like him, more able to effectively represent him. Why do people feel the Holy Spirit when they walk into this place? Because we have surrendered ourselves. You see, lost fish, no fake lures. We have to strive to let Jesus mold and shape us into the lure that he has for us when he puts us into the water. You see, we make disciples the way Jesus made disciples. He invited them to follow along. That was his salvation plan. Just follow. Come on. Come follow me and you'll see. Come follow me and you'll begin to understand. Follow me and you know, you'll know. Follow me and you'll become a fisher of men. Andrew did it. He told Peter, you just have to go meet him. I can't explain it. I don't, just go and meet him. Philip wanted his buddy Nathaniel to meet Jesus. He said, what good can come from Nazareth? He said, just come and see. Come meet him. They knew if they could just get their friends who were lost into the presence of Jesus, they would come to know the truth. That's what fishing is all about. We as a community inviting people into the presence of Jesus who is being manifest through us. We don't have the answers. We don't have any more answers at Remnant than anybody else does, but we know the one who does. And we tell our friends, just like he told Peter, come and see, just come and see. If we can be the body of Christ that God intended us to be, our hearts pure with God and with each other, if we recognize that we're partnering together, that I need you here as much as you need me here because people are gonna walk through that door, your friends, family, coworkers, people we haven't met yet are gonna come through that door and they need all of us. Fishing is a partnership business. Regardless of what they experience in other churches, regardless of how many questions they have, how many televangelists have beat them up, how many moral failures other church leaders have had, regardless of church bias, regardless of church racism, regardless of megaphone man who keeps screaming at them that they're gonna burn in hell, no matter what happens, Jesus is building his church here at Remnant. Look around, these are all the people God has brought here to fish with you. There's more to fishing than just having your testimony read. You need to get them into the presence as best you can of Jesus through your life and through the lives of others. You see, I need you to be the best representation of Christ you can be, and you need me to be the same because people are gonna come in looking for authenticity. And if you can help me become more authentic and I can help you become more authentic, then we together can change the world because a lot of people walk into churches and round trip. The church of Jesus is the most powerful, persuasive force on the planet. And as we love and serve others, people are moved by the heart of God. And it takes all of us to fish. As we invest our time and our resources here, we can never take our eye off the ball. 
We advance the gospel by inviting people to come hear the story and come and see. So how do you see your role at church? Are you in the fishing business with the rest of us or is this place really just about you and what you want? Are you leveraging your relationships with those who don't know Jesus, who are struck in the mud? Are you encouraging people to come and see? Are you investing to make sure you're here and ready to receive the people other people have brought here? Are you just attending Remnant or are you partnering with us for the mission? When you're here and you walk through these doors, do you think that you're here on official Jesus business or on your own business? You see, many churches have forgot that they're supposed to be fishing for men. Perhaps they became too comfortable. Perhaps their passion for others has faded. Maybe too focused on themselves and other desires, worried too much about comfort and convenience. Perhaps an unconfessed sin is keeping you from authenticity. Maybe you've just become spiritually slothful. You're not seeking his kingdom at all. You're pursuing yours. If that's you, I have one thing to say. We love you and we need you fishing with us. Get on your knees and confess that sin. Get over it. Get with God. Get right. Then get on the business of doing Jesus' business. I want everybody at Remnant to commit to fishing together. You bring your lost fish, we'll bring our lost fish. Jesus will build his church. Every day we serve over 150 people who are in some of the most desperate situations in life, who are looking for a place. And there's a reason they're at this church and not all the other churches or many of the other churches. Because we're right where we think God has us. We baptized six last week. There's a spiritual move going on among the people that everybody else says are in the mud. They were lost people bound for hell and they came out of that baptismal with angels celebrating in heaven. And my first thought was, we're gonna break down the gates of hell and free people. Bringing them like us to the supernatural revelation that Peter had that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he's my Savior now. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we get to do life together. I thank you that we fish together. I thank you, God, that you didn't put us here just to wait to go home. You put us here because you want us to share the truth with other people. The gospel's not intuitive. If somebody doesn't explain it and show it, it's not understood. So God, help us to expect people who don't know you to act like they don't know you. Help us to expect people that are bound behind the gates of hell and chained by Satan, don't look like us, act like us, think like us. Thank God, because that's evidence of how much we've changed. So God, help us to get off of our pious stance, our righteous judgment. You said you came to save the lost. Help us, God, to open our eyes and see the lost. Help us to go where you tell us to fish, to do whatever you ask through the power of your spirit. We love you. We thank you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 